0: Morning, if you would, turn me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to come right back to the Proverbs where Mark just read for us. But we're going to start our thoughts from Hebrews chapter 12. From time to time this year, we've tried to spend some time in the Proverbs to think about how to live a wise life. And not a wise life in the way the world would define that or think about that, but a wise life according to God, starting with fearing God, understanding who he is and aligning our lives appropriately uh, to him. And there's a lot of sections of the Proverbs. Actually, the whole book of Proverbs is written as a father addressing his sons. We see that in the text that Mark just read for us. He begins, my son, there in chapter three and verse one. He often does that. Maybe to call attention to it. Of course, those of us who are fathers and anyone who's been around fathers, you know that happens. So i like, hey, son, I need you to pay attention right now. I'm not just talking. I got something important I need to tell you. And that's what a lot of the Proverbs are. It's a father trying to teach his sons how to be what God wants them to be. And by the way, it was a king teaching his sons how to be what they needed to be. It was royalty, uh, teaching royalty how to be royal in God's eyes. So the passage, though, that Mark read for us, uh, it kind of has a laundry list of it's more than advice. I mean, it's it's more than counsel. It's instruction. It's guidance. This is how you need to live your life. But verse 11 and 12 is what we're going to really key in on for the next few minutes. Um, My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. It's easy to not appreciate discipline or to kind of push it off, to not want it to be a part of your life. And that can maybe especially be true with God. It's not a very nice feeling to get disciplined by anybody, uh, someone at work or someone in your family or some friend telling you how you need to make some kind of change. And the same is true with the Lord. Now, Here's the interesting thing about the Lord's discipline. Sometimes God unilaterally intervenes in our lives to discipline us. He takes action outside of our control, outside of our knowledge to try to wake us up, to try to reorient us. That's, that's something that's true. But more often than that, uh, God, the way God disciplines us is through the instructions he's given us for how to live. The book of Hebrews addresses that in Hebrews chapter 12. Notice in verse one, it says, therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. A lot of instructions here. Consider those who are a cloud of witnesses, people of faith who are modeling that and are showing you the worth uh, the worth of living a, a life that's faithful to God. Um, lay aside sin and anything that would slow not even the non-sinful stuff that might slow you down from chasing after God. Throw that stuff out of your life. You don't need that in your life anymore keep concentrated on jesus and the point being keep following after jesus be like him uh consider him he endured hostility you're going to endure that too okay what does this have to do with the discipline of the lord we'll keep reading verse four he says for you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin i love that i say it's so hard to not sin he's like yeah you ain't dead yet though it's not that hard you're still living all right you haven't shed blood for resisting sin so just keep on going with it okay Then he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. What exhortation is addressed to us as sons? Does this sound familiar? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives the hebrew writer is talking about following jesus and serving god now on this side of the cross and he quotes this passage in proverbs and says hey that was written for you and that thing of that royal father writing to his royal child telling him how to live that wasn't just for an ancient time that wasn't just a dad giving good advice to his kid that was actually for all people who would even follow jesus you need to understand that God is disciplined. And when you say, oh, it's so hard to fill in the blank, whatever aspect of following after Jesus that is so hard. Yeah, it is. But that's God's discipline in your life. It's not just those things that God unilaterally does to discipline you, but it's actually the commands God gives us to follow, the things he gives us to do, the calls he gives us in the gospel of how to change our lives. That's his discipline. Now, here's the other challenging thing about discipline. Uh is the experience we've had with earthly fathers. Uh, Days like today are kind of um, interesting, and that's probably a neutral word, but maybe complicated is a maybe more honest word. Because probably a day like today, where everybody's talking about fathers, for some of us, we sit there and we say, well, I never knew my father. So this is such a big deal, having a father. I have this sense of real loss. And maybe... Something's wrong, irreparably so in my life. Others of us might say, well, yeah, I mean, you never knew your father, but honestly, I wish I didn't know my father because the way he treated me or abused me or lived his life. And so I hear you on the loss that you feel. But for me, it's sort of a sense of betrayal that here was this person who was supposed to be all these things to me, but he wasn't. And he was actually the exact opposite to me.
1: And then others
0: might keep their mouth shut because they know this would be an unwelcome addition to the conversation, but might think, man, I had a good father. But honestly, my whole life, I felt like I've never been able to live up to him, to the expectations he set for me. Even if he was good and gracious, there's a burden here of not being what I know I ought to have been. And then, of course, there's those of us who are fathers who look ourselves in the mirror every day and think, man, I got to step it up because I don't know if I'm really being all that I need to be. You know what I'm saying? Oh, this is all negative. That's because we talk all positive. That's good. We should talk positively about good fathers and celebrate those who are living as fathers as they ought to be. But we know that in the midst of all that joy, there's also weeping. And like the scripture says, we got to rejoice with those who rejoice. Do that. And weep with those who weep on this. The Hebrew writer does just that in the next verse. Listen to what he says in verse seven. He says, it is for discipline that you endure, that discipline of the Lord. That's why you endure. God deals with you as sons. All the things God gives to, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And I might say, if you're reading an old translation like the old King James, you don't have the word illegitimate there. You actually might be surprised if you're new to this passage. because you think, whoa, the Bible has swear words in it. Because in the old English, there's a word that we use now as a swear word. Hopefully we actually don't use it, but people use it to speak about men who aren't behaving the way they ought to behave. Illegitimate. That's what happens to us without discipline. That's what it says. Then it says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. And we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of the spirits and live? for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Here's what the Hebrew writer acknowledges. None of our earthly fathers, none of us who are earthly fathers can hack it. Even the best of us, and too often we're not the best of us, but even the best of us can only do a little bit of what really needs to happen in a human life. But the promise of this passage is that we have a blessed assurance, that we have a heavenly father who always disciplines us for our good, whatever category you fall into, in whatever experience you have with an earthly Father, we have a heavenly Father who disciplines us for our good. And this one still doesn't sound very nice. What did we just sing a second ago? Perfect. I mean all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. That doesn't sound like Were you thinking while you were singing that? Yes, God is disciplining me so good. I'm blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Were you thinking that when you were singing that song? I don't think so. You were thinking this is nice. This does not sound nice. Discipline does not sound nice. And it's not. It's not. But look again at verse six, and this is straight out of Proverbs 3. What is God doing when he disciplines us? For those whom the Lord loves... He disciplines. And sometimes when we're going through our life, it feels like God's far away. That's why I'm going through hardship. Or God, God's given me this command to do, it. And it feels kind of oppressive, like he doesn't love me, like he's messing my life up with these instructions that he's given me. No, he's loving you. Like a good and perfect and wise, loving father, he disciplines us. The fact that God disciplines us doesn't just tell us something about God, though. It also tells us something about us. We need it. We need it. Y'all been around kids. You've been those kids that needed that discipline. And it's a real shame and a sad thing and a horror, actually, whenever someone is not disciplined because an undisciplined life leads to chaos and ruin. And that's why the father in Proverbs speaks to his sons in a disciplinary way. Don't do this. Do that. By the way, discipline isn't always punishment. It's training. It's guidance, it's perspective. And yeah, correction whenever wrong is done. That's what God's doing for us because he loves us. All right, I want you to go back to the book of Proverbs, to Proverbs chapter one. And I want to just blow through a few verses here to just in case you're thinking, eh, I don't know, I'm pretty good. I don't think I need that much discipline. You're wrong. You're a fool if you think that. That's not me talking. That's the Proverbs talking. Go back to Proverbs chapter one, starting verse 23. Proverbs one is a scene of wisdom, personified as this lady out in the out in the streets, just screaming out to people, I wish you'd listen to me and pay attention to me. I've got good stuff for you. Verse 23, turn to my reproof. Proverbs one, verse 23. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. That word reproof, same word for discipline. And I, I want you to listen to the discipline that I have to offer. Proverbs one twenty-five: But you neglected all my counsel and you did not want my discipline. You're messing your life up because you're not paying attention to me. I've got good stuff for you. Verse 30, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my discipline. And because of that, Lady Wisdom says, you're going to eat it for the rest of your life because you reject this discipline. Look at Proverbs chapter six. This is the father talking to his kids in another uh, section. Proverbs six and verse, um, start verse 20. Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they'll guide you. You'll have them right there with you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. When you wake, they'll talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And reproofs for discipline, great line here, are the way of life. That way maker we just sang about, that promise keeper, We need his discipline. We need his guidance if we want to live. If you want to have a life that's full and meaningful and rich and lasting, you need the discipline of our father, God. Flip over to uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Just a little one-liner right here on this notion of our need for discipline. Proverbs 12, verse 1. This is tough. You might want to cover some of the kids' ears on this one. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline... Loves knowledge. The idea is this is good for you. You'll know how to live. You'll know how to be if you get disciplined. But he who hates reproof or hates discipline is stupid. Being stupid is not not having information. It's being unwilling to receive information. Be unwilling to be disciplined, to be guided, to be corrected. Look at Proverbs chapter 15. There's a couple here and then we'll pause on this uh, notion. I think you get it, but we need to make sure we get it. Proverbs 15 verses 31 and 32 on our need for discipline, Proverbs 15, 31 and 32. It says, he whose ear listens to life-giving discipline will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. You hear this? If you reject God's discipline in your life, if you reject discipline on the job, in school, in your physical body, when your doctor tells you, if you reject discipline... You're neglecting yourself. Uh, people talk about self-care, self-love, all that kind of stuff. God says, listen, you don't have to worry about it. If you would just take my discipline, you're not going to have to self-love. I'm going to love on you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to correct you, and you'll be good. You'll be good if you accept my discipline. We need discipline. It's the way of life, or else we're going to run ourselves into ruin and chaos. All right, What are the arenas, though, that we need discipline? I mean, I hope we've established that the, the scriptures are clear that we need discipline. We need to be trained. We need to be grown up by God. And we can't do that on our own. We don't discipline ourselves. We need God to do it as our father. But what are some of the arenas in which we need discipline? Because you may think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know people need discipline, but I'm a grown up. I pay my bills. I take myself to work. I get myself dressed in the morning. I don't need discipline anymore. That's for little kids. Well, I'll remind you, the Hebrew writer was not writing to little kids. You might say the proverb, it's a father speaking to his kids, but I'm grown now. Well, look, you're not grown enough. You're not grown in Jesus. Not yet. So we need it. What I'd like to do is is expose you to a couple of arenas in which we all need discipline. And maybe one of these will be a little more for you. Maybe one will be a little less. But I think these will resonate with all of us. Maybe all of these, these three arenas that the proverbs hit on uh, as far as arenas that we where we really need discipline are important for us to reflect upon and then to be eager for the discipline God gives us. All right, uh, so flip over to Proverbs 6 again. Proverbs 6. Here's the first arena uh, in which we require discipline from the Lord. Laziness. Laziness. Um, How do you do with being lazy? Man, I hate getting up in the morning. I'm not even doing just like try to relate to people. I do. I do not like getting up in the morning. You know, you wake up, you're like, it feels good right here. It feels really good right here. And I'd it'd be fine just to stay. Amen. And I love laying out on the couch, pop the TV on, get some kind of snack that I shouldn't be eating right there. I love that. That's good. Those are good feelings. And they are. But laziness is something that is a, a curse to us. It's a curse to us. And, and by the way, with all three of these reasons, I want to make this statement. All three of these arenas we're going to look at as far as arenas in which we require the discipline of the Lord, um, they're sort of our natural impulse. We have a natural impulse for laziness. The other things we're going to look at, we have a natural impulse for that or a trained impulse. I don't know, but that's our impulse. That's our first impulse. Let me be lazy, for instance. We need God's discipline so that our impulses will be overruled by God's wisdom. My impulses must be overruled by God's wisdom. Now, here's the deal. It feels like the right decision in the morning when the alarm goes off to keep being lazy. It feels like the right decision to just lay out on the couch all day sometimes. And those are just, you know, I understand. Sometimes you need to get your sleep. Sometimes you need to rest. There's nothing wrong with rest and stuff. We're talking about laziness. And you know the difference between rest and laziness. Um, That's an impulse that needs to be overruled by God's wisdom. Listen to what God has to say about this. Proverbs 6 and verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, no officer, no ruler, she prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Yeah, your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Laziness destroys you, is what this uh, passage says. And there are others. I want you to notice something here. What this means is laziness, let's define it. Laziness is uh, never getting out and doing anything. Y'all know about ants. Just watch those little dudes sometime. Obey the scriptures and go watch some of those little dudes sometimes. Uh, and they're just always moving. They're always on the move, always working. This is bad. I'm going to confess something. When I was a kid, we would have a lot of ant beds in our yard growing up, right? Some of y'all probably need to join me up here in this confession. But what you do is, of course, as a kid, you take that little stick, and you think, sorry, ants. <laughs> and you go to, go to town on that ant bed, right? What do they do? What do the ants do then? You know what they don't do? They don't look up and say, oh, well. Right back to work. Immediately. Scurrying around. I don't even know what they're doing. They're too tiny to be able to tell exactly what they're But I know they're doing something. And then the next day, what's there again? A full, nice, rounded off ant bed, right? That's their work. They don't let things stop them from doing something and they don't need somebody to tell them. I like where it says there's no officer, no chief, no ruler. They're just all doing it. And we know about the science of ants and how there is some hierarchy. But when you watch them, they're just all working. In other words, laziness means that I have some sense of initiative. I'm going to get up and do something. I'm not just going to lay back and wait for somebody to drag me out of bed. I'm going to have a sense of initiative. I'm going to go out there and work and accomplish and do and not just be a lazy bum. Let me show you another uh, section of the Proverbs that speak about this. Look at Proverbs 24. Obviously, at the end of this passage we just read, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. You say a little, just a little sleep, just a little slumber, just a little folding of hands. Yeah, you're going to be ruined if you let that happen. Here's the way that's described in Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 30. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard. We left him in chapter six. Go look at the ant. What's the sluggard doing now? I passed by his field, which, of course, fields in the ancient world and, frankly, in a lot of the world today Fields is how you eat. Fields is how you provide for yourself. That's your that's your whole. That's everything. That's your workplace. That's your your day to day uh, provision, all that stuff. Verse 30, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Notice the parallel sluggard lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. So not only is there bad stuff in the actual garden and vineyard, but actually any protection from animals that might come in and mess up, whatever good stuff might go totally broken down. This person has lost all sight of what they need to have and what they need to do in order to be provided for. When I saw verse 32, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. And here we are again, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. I remember what you said. You said, I'm just gonna sleep a little while. I'm just gonna rest a little while. No, you were a bum. You were being lazy. And because of that laziness, verse 34, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. One more on laziness. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 13. Proverbs 26 and verse 13 says, the sluggard says this, I gotta keep sleeping. I gotta keep folding my hands. I gotta keep resting because there's a lion in the road. We can all come with good reasons to be lazy. There's a lion in the road. The lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. Isn't that a great image? Also, ouch, I'm triggered. This was a little too close to home. You ever done that before? You just roll over, hit the snooze button, roll back. A few more minutes later, roll over, hit it, roll back. Well, look, a couple times hitting the snooze button in the morning. Okay, I don't think we're going to judge that. But the point here is that the sluggard is one. That's all they do. They never make any forward movement. That door is not going anywhere. It doesn't, it, it just stays right there. You want your life to stay right where it is? Then keep being lazy. You'll never progress. You'll never grow. You'll never become anything more than what you are. You'll just be like a door on its hinge, just flopping back and forth. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. Can you imagine that? You're hungry. Cram your hand down into that dish. And you're so lazy, you can't even lift it up to your face. That's what he says it's like when you live a lazy life. Yeah, you bury yourself in all this rest, a little rest, a little slumber, a little folding in the hands, but it never pays off. It never makes anything. It never comes around to mean anything in your life. The sluggard, and here's the worst part. And here's the thing I really need to watch out for. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Point being, Am not lazy? Or, you know what? Yeah, okay, I'm lazy. I sleep a little more. I rest a little more. I lay out a little more. But you don't understand. Like, I'm really working on I'm. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be able to come through, and here's why, and here's all these reasons I'm going to be able to pull. You think you're smarter than all these other people? Look, you're a fool. You're a fool. My impulse for laziness has to be overruled by God's wisdom. Let me give you another arena in which we need discipline from God so that our impulses will be overruled by his wisdom. And that's in the realm of emotions. Emotions are not bad, right? Emotions are good. They're from God. God has emotions. We should be, we are emotional creatures. We were made that way by God. And they're a tool for us for good if we use them that way. But the danger that we all face as human beings is to have our emotional impulses govern our decisions rather than overruling those impulses with the wisdom of God. And that emotional volatility will ruin our lives. Listen to a couple of Proverbs on this. Uh, Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 14 and uh, we'll start with verse 17. Proverbs 14 and verse 17. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated you ever found this one to be true, I want you to think about the last time you acted out of a quick temper, quick temper. Maybe with a stranger on the train, maybe with a family member or friend who said something or did something that you didn't appreciate very much. You got disrespected. You were violated in some way and you said or did something. And we'll even say this. I don't know why I said that. Well, let's be more honest. I do know why I said that. I let my temper dictate My actions, I let that emotional volatility lead me to take an action that was wrong. And I know it's wrong, but I let that temper get me. Look at verse 29 with another uh, statement about our emotions and how they get around to us. Verse 29, he who is slow to anger has great understanding. In other words, he's a well-disciplined man. He's someone who's wise, who knows how to not let their anger control them. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. I love that line because I think there's at least two ways. There's probably more, but at least two ways I think about this phrase. The quick tempered person exalts folly. One way is in my own, you think something pretty silly. And if you would have some self-control, some discipline from God, you would take a beat and think, you know what? That thing I was about to say, that's ridiculous. I shouldn't say that to them because they didn't mean it that way. Or I don't really... What I felt there, that's a temptation thought, but that's not what I actually think about this person. It's just my my temper is, is letting this tempting thought lead me to say something real hateful or mean or whatever. But whenever I let my temper control me, I say the thing, I say the thing. And it exalts foolish things. And you know how that goes. Whenever you say a foolish thing in a moment of anger, it's almost like the anger burns it into that moment. And it's really, really hard to unpack that and to break that out of a relationship. A quick-tempered person exalts folly. The foolish thoughts that I have or the impulses I may have about something I may say or something I may do, a quick-tempered person exalts that folly within himself. It also exalts it in a situation. How many times has there been somebody acting a fool and then you decided to get right on board with them, with their anger? This is a problem, man. I got to work on this. You get right on board with their anger, right on board with their foolishness, and then you respond to their anger or their bad behavior with some sort of quick-tempered response. And then their foolishness, which you know is foolishness, you may even be trying to fix their foolishness, but because you respond out of a quick temper, out of your emotional volatility, you actually exalt their folly and make it even more significant. You give it more power. You give it more greatness. You get the point? If we would cool it, if we would be disciplined by the Lord, if we would let his wisdom overrule our impulses, We wouldn't do that. How about another one? Verse 30. A tranquil heart is life to the body. What a great line. A tranquil heart is life to the body. But passion is rottenness to the bones. My emotional impulses have to be overruled by God's wisdom. The the way that, um, look at Proverbs chapter 16. And by the way, let me just highlight something as you're going over to Proverbs 16. Uh, There's other emotions we got to watch out for and guard against. What about fear? There's a fear of the Lord that's a decision, that's a conscious thought that I have about God. But there's also emotional fear that I have about you fill in your blank for whatever your fears are. I don't know what they are. Some animal, some insect, some event, some circumstance, some treatment, some whatever, whatever it may be. We all have these fears inside of us. And if we let those emotional uh, fears control us, then we're going to be volatile people. We're going to say and do things that will destroy our lives. Just like all this stuff about anger, it applies to the same as emotional fear. What about jealousy? You've been jealous of a coworker. You've been jealous of some close friend or actually you were jealous. Maybe you had a best friend and then somebody else came into that friendship and then you became jealous of that person who was the friend. Rather than just saying, hey, maybe I've got a new friend. You decided that's an enemy and I'm jealous of them now. Um, and, you know, there's all these kinds of ways we can, be jealous. somebody gets a has, has, has big success and where they move to or some vehicle they get or some promotion they get at their job has nothing to do with you. And then you somehow feel bad for them and you start treating them kind of bad because you let that emotion of jealousy, that passion dictate your actions rather than letting your impulse for jealousy or fear or anger or lust or you fill in the blank. Rather than letting your impulse be overruled by God's wisdom, you just let that control you. We got to learn to overcome that. I love a couple of lines here in the Proverbs that give us sort of an image of how we should think about our emotions and how we need to discipline ourselves, be disciplined by our loving father so that we won't let our emotions control us. Proverbs 16 and verse 32. The one who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than the one who captures a city. You may, instead of uh, mighty, it may say a warrior. And that's the idea mighty in the ancient world is is somebody who would go out and fight for the country and fight for their family, a warrior. You know what warriors do? They're disciplined people. They're ordered people. They think of things outside of themselves. We'll get more to that in just a second. We start talking about how to be disciplined. Um, But the point is, think of yourself like a warrior. And the person you're at war against is yourself. At war against the impulses that you have. Those emotional impulses, we're at war against those things. So that they don't control us, but rather we take them captive and we utilize them so we can go capture cities. You know what I'm saying? So that we can go accomplish something good in our lives. There's another one later in the Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs 25, slightly different, but pretty much in the same uh, same imagery. Proverbs 25, verse 28, it says like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. So this is the opposite, right? The, the proverb in Proverbs sixteen thirty two is you're thinking about yourself as a warrior who's going to go and capture a city. Okay, I need to get control. Don't let my emotions rule me, but rather overrule my emotions with the wisdom of God. This one, you're on the other side. You're inside the city. And there's all these attacks coming from you from the outside. And, of course, we have those in our job, in our close relationships, out and about just doing your thing at the grocery store, whatever. You have these attacks that stir up those emotional volatility moments, right? Be someone who doesn't have a broken down wall. Be someone who's disciplined, who doesn't let those things get in and control you. We need to be disciplined, not only against our laziness, but against our emotional volatility. Let me show you one more. Then I want us to talk about how we can uh, work on this stuff briefly. Um, Proverbs 23. There's several that I want to read on this, but I think I'm just going to read Proverbs 23 for sake of time. Proverbs 23, starting in verse 19. Here's the third arena that the Proverbs talk about. And, and you know there are many others, but we're just highlighting these so that we can reflect on a couple. And by the way, I hope you're seeing that maybe I should just sit down and read the Proverbs a little more so that I could see some arenas in which I personally need to be disciplined by the Lord. In Proverbs 23, we're brought to another uh, arena in which we need discipline, and that is indulgence, indulgence. Fleshly indulgence what I'm talking about. Listen to what the Proverb writer says, Proverbs 23 beginning in verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Remember the way to be disciplined. That's where we are here. Do not be with. You don't even say don't be one. He says, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you And do not despise your mother when she's old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Let's get down a few verses more because we got a little more on this. Verse 29, he says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Who is totally messed up? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Because at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will sink another drink. It's so easy to become indulgent people. And we live just like these people lived, apparently, in a culture that encourages indulgence. Have whatever food you want, however much you want, whenever you want. Listen, I love a good buffet. But have you ever thought about how crazy those things are? If you don't have any kind of self-control, you can be a crazy person at one of those things. Um, think about how indulgent we can be about our entertainment. Y'all ever pop on Netflix and you sit there for an hour trying to figure out what of the thousands of things that are available, they literally, have you seen the new button they have on Netflix, the play something button, because they know we just sit there so many options. I can't even choose to indulge myself. Right. Uh, And again, food is not bad. He doesn't condemn food. What he condemns is indulgence. Being uh, stirred up with some story in a TV show or movie, that's not wrong. But what can be wrong is when I become indulgent, right? All this warning about wine and mixed wine. Indulging. Being someone who just, I'm just going to town on this stuff. I'm letting this control me. It's so easy to become an indulgent person. A selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent person. Do you hear what he says happens? You ruin your life. What happens to people who lie down in the midst of the sea? They sink. They sink to their death forever. That's the point of that imagery. And if we are people who live undisciplined lives, who let our impulse for fleshly indulgence rule us, we will be destroyed. We need God's discipline so that we will not let our impulses rule us. Rather, our impulses be overruled by God's wisdom. You could keep on going with all kinds of arenas in which we need God's discipline. Here's all I want us to do now. All this is like, okay, so I need to be disciplined. And I know I got problems. I mean, I know generally I need God's discipline. And here, maybe you can see, actually, yeah, that's mine. The indulgent one, that's me. Uh, the emotional volatility, that's my issue. Or laziness, that's my problem. I need help with that. How do we get better? How does God discipline? Because remember we said at the top, it's not like God just comes in and zaps you with discipline. But God gives you instruction for how to live. And through that instruction, he disciplines us. Go back to Proverbs 3. And I'm just going to briefly highlight uh, four concepts from Proverbs 3 that show us how God disciplines us. First one, Proverbs 3 and verse 1, teaching, teaching. Isn't that the point of verses 1 and 2? My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep, protect, preserve, make it important, my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Notice how all that undisciplined stuff we've been talking about, laziness, uh, emotional volatility, indulgence, all of those ended with destruction, having your life all messed up. But if you receive the teaching and the commandments of God, if you're a genuine learner of what God has to say, you'll have peace. You'll be whole. Years of life, it will add to you. And by the way, you might say, well, I mean, is this promise I get to live to 100? No, the promise we have in Jesus Christ is we live forever, much longer than 100. And though your body will die at some point, you will live on forever and ever. If you receive God's discipline in his teaching, how committed are you to God's teaching? How committed are you to reading your Bible? But not just reading your Bible, thinking about, meditating on the word of God, and not just thinking about it, but actually going out and doing it, exercising it, practicing it, so that you can better learn what God's will is. How committed are you to the teaching of God, if you want to be disciplined and therefore loved as a son of God, you need that God's teaching. Verse three and four. Second thing we need, if we want to be disciplined by God and to enjoy His love and to grow up the way He wants for us, is a, is a word that um, isn't a word we use very often because not in our language. But it's a tricky word when it gets put into our language. so I'm going to say it. It's the word Chesed, Chesed. All right. Verse three. Says, do not let chesed and truth leave you. Now, you had different words there. Some of you had the word faithfulness. Some of you had the word kindness. Some of you had the word mercy. That's because it's kind of a. Here's what the word means. It means making a commitment to goodness, making a commitment to goodness for another. God particularly uses this to talk His commitment to our good, that He promises that He'll do good for us. So what that means, He shows us mercy. But it doesn't mean he's always like nice to us because if we do bad and we need to be punished for bad, he punishes us to tr- get us back on because it's for our good. I need to be a person that's committed to good. And in this context, in verse three, it, it appears that the good is uh, being committed to the good of others. Look at verse three and four again. Do not let Hesed and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. In other words, this has said this commitment to the good of other of another isn't just our commitment to the good of God, but it's the commitment to the good of others. You know what would overrule help me be overruled in my impulse for emotional volatility, anger or jealousy is if I thought first about what you needed and what you wanted rather than what I need and what I want. That'll discipline me where I say, you know what? I shouldn't say that. That's a mean thing to say. And I don't want to treat someone else that way because I'm committed to their good, not to my good. See, that's an undisciplined person that's committed to their good or laziness. You know what will get me out of bed in the morning is if I'm thinking about how I can do a good for someone else or those of us who are fathers who may want to just be lazy and lay out uh, later in the day, we might think a little more about what does mom need? What do the kids need? What does some friend or neighbor or brother or sister, what do they need? And if I'm committed to their good, it's going to discipline me to overcome that impulse to laziness. Learning the teaching of God, a commitment to the good of others. Verses seven and eight, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil and it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Number three, humility. Stop thinking you're the smartest person. You remember what the lazy man thought? The lazy man thinks he's wise in his own eyes. I know better than anybody else. And actually he's a dummy. He's a dummy. When it comes to indulgence, really indulgence saying, God, I know what you said about sexual ethics. God, I know what you said about drunkenness and sobriety. God, I know what you said about gluttony. But you don't understand. You don't understand. I got, I got some things going on here where I need to do this. Or it's okay in my case. I know that's the rule for most people. Stop being so arrogant. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will exalt you. If I want to be disciplined by God, I've got to be humble enough to actually listen to the teaching and to care about the good of others rather than just my own good. I've got to learn to be a humble person. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Number four, not only do I need to Observe God's teaching. That's number one if I want to be disciplined. Not only do I need to be someone who's committed to the good of others. said, number two. Not only do I need to be a humble person before God, but I need to be a person of sacrifice. Indulgence, laziness, emotional volatility. I want things to be nice for me. But look at what verse 9 says. Honor the Lord with the first fruits. Here's an interesting thing. Whenever in the old covenant, people that gave their first fruits, well, who did they give them to? They didn't just burn them up. Some of the things were just burned up on the offering, just directly to God. But you know, a lot of the offerings that they gave were for other people. For instance, the priests and the Levites who had no inheritance in the land. Whenever you gave your offering to God, you're actually giving it to others. There are a number of references throughout the scriptures that speak of how when you would care for the poor, It was a way of honoring God or giving it to God. And we know that in the new covenant, that's very true, that whatever we have, we give. And God sees that as it's like a a good aroma to him. It's something that smells good because he sees the sacrifice we make for others and they're for him. And if I would learn to be a sacrificial person, I don't have time to be indulgent because whatever I have. Yeah, I need to provide for myself so that I can get out there and serve and give and do For others rather than myself. I can't be lazy if I want to be sacrificing for others. I can't be taking my time and my energy just for me because I'm thinking about how I can give to others. If we want to be disciplined and therefore loved by God as his children, we've got to be people who observe his teaching. We've got to be people who are committed to the good of others, not just ourselves. We've got to be people who are humble before God. We've got to be people of sacrifice, not of receiving all the time. Though, hey, whenever you receive, just thank God for it. But be ready to, once you take with one hand, keep your other hand open to make that sacrifice to God for the good of others in humility before his precepts. Now, you might say this sounds like a dangerous way to live. It's a lot safer because, after all, remember, there's a lion in the streets, and there is. And his name's the devil. So that's true. There is a lion in the streets. And we think it's a lot nicer in my bed getting upset about whatever I'm while I'm doom scrolling on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. I'm just getting upset, emotionally volatile, watching another show on Netflix. That's a safer way to live. And I guess you're right in the short term for a day, maybe, but not very long. And you know that we all know that it's not the way to live at all. It's a quick way to die, but it's no way to live. But here's the thing. If we want to be disciplined by God, The really key thing that we need is verses five and six, which you'll notice I skipped over. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's all this stuff. I trust in the Lord so I listen to his teaching. I trust in the Lord so I'm committed to the good of another just as he is committed to my good. I trust in the Lord so I humble myself before him. Even when he tells me stuff that doesn't sound very sensible to me or doesn't sound correct to me or I just don't like very much, I trust him. So I humble myself before him. And I trust in the Lord, which means I live with an open hand, open hands, sacrificing whatever I can for him and for others, knowing that he's going to take care of me in the end. And actually, let me take you back for the finish to Hebrews 12 that was actually the whole point in Hebrews chapter 12 it's all about trusting God just as Jesus trusted the father he trusted in the goodness of God his father he trusted in the love of the father and so he went to the cross and he despised the shame knowing where it would all lead that it would lead to the joy of sitting down at the right hand of the father bringing many sons to glory and that's where we're going y'all this life of pursuing the discipline of God of of even relishing the discipline of God, desiring the discipline of God. It's not something that's going to abuse us. It's not something that's going to destroy us. And whatever experience you've had with your earthly father, it's nothing like the experience that we're having with our heavenly Father. Here's the deal: the best your earthly father could do is, I don't know, teach you a few things about how to make it in this earth, and maybe point you to God. Hopefully, but listen to what our heavenly Father does. Hebrews 12 and verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share his holiness. You would think what God is like. The one who lives in eternal light, the one of all power, one of all goodness and love, such that all the spiritual beings that honor him, at least, they, they can't even bear to look at him. They cover themselves and they just fly around singing, holy, holy, holy. We, we can't even find words to describe what he is and who he is. That's his holiness. And did you hear what this passage says? God is disciplining you, not just to punish you because you've been a bad one. No, God is training you. He's changing you to turn you into something better than you could have ever imagined, better than any earthly father could have ever made you into. He's making you to share His holiness, to be just like Him, so that whenever you meet Him one day, you'll be fit to go into His house and to dwell in His house forever. All discipline, yes, for the moment, seems not to be joyful. It's not. All that stuff that I said is not joyful to deal with all your problems, to submit yourself to God. It's not very joyful in the moment. It's actually sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You want things to be right in your life? You want things to be right down here where everything feels all messed up all the time? Submit to the discipline of God. Know the love of God is your father. And we can sing even more surely the words that we sang a moment ago. Perfect submission to the discipline of God. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love.